This is Podcast Raleigh with your hosts Ashton and Hayes. The city has a comprehensive plan, and that comprehensive plan um, dictates what the city's growth is going to be, what are our levels of development, different types of development, and in response to that, we have developed a roadway network of, of streets and highways. Welcome into Podcast Raleigh. In this episode, we conclude our election issues series by talking transportation with Eric Lamb, transportation planning manager for the city of Raleigh. If you haven't had the chance, go check out our other episodes in this series, starting with Smeeds York, former mayor of Raleigh, who discussed campaigning and city issues past and present. After that, we talked zoning and city planning with Elizabeth Alley, a former planner for the city of Raleigh. And in the episode previous to this one, we talked to Greg Warren and Yvette Holmes of DHIC about affordable housing. Much more important than listening to our podcast, though, is actually voting. Election day is Tuesday, October the 8th, and we would love for 100% of Podcast Rally listeners to vote. In just a minute, you'll hear our conversation with Eric Lamb, but first, a shout out to our local rally sponsor, Steel Residential. Finding a new home doesn't have to be painful. With the expert agents at Steel Residential, you'll have decades of local knowledge and experience guiding you, whether you're looking to buy, rent, or manage your property. With an office in Raleigh's Cameron Village, you can also find them online or give them a call at 919-443-5834 and start the search for your next home. Learn more at steelresidential.com. That's S-T-E-E-L-E, residential.com. Eric Lamb is the Transportation Planning Manager for the City of Raleigh. He holds civil engineering degrees from NC State and previously worked for the North Carolina Department of Transportation. Not only did he explain to us how the city's transportation department works, he told us where we'll be seeing new roundabouts in the future and about the new scooter company in town. But first, we started by talking about what his job entails. I'm responsible for all of the multimodal programming for the city. I work a lot with uh, our folks to line up projects, and we cover the spectrum of street projects, uh, major street improvements, bicycle, sidewalk. Uh, We're working a lot with uh, transit agencies now as we're moving towards implementation of the Wake uh, bus rapid transit uh, projects. Uh, I also do a lot of work with NCDOT on any of their projects uh, that are in our region, both from the sense of uh, we help set the priorities for the, the area and for the region, collaborate with other localities and making sure that all these projects are meeting their needs, um, and then working ultimately on the content of the projects once they go forward and making sure that they fit within the, the context and the city's comprehensive plan. And this, was this your dream job growing, growing up as a kid? Did you like play with cars and like intersect the hot wheels and the, uh, the train tracks so that, that everything was going on? Like, did you, is, this, is this something you saw yourself doing or, or found sort of uh, as you educated yourself? That's a really funny question. The, the answer is a lot more indirect than that. Uh, so I'm a second-generation transportation uh, civil engineer. My, my dad worked for NCDOT for years, but he worked exclusively on the maintenance side, uh, which gave me some perspective as I started doing this type of work, knowing that it's important to be able to maintain whatever it is that you build. Sure, yeah. Um, but we came from completely different backgrounds. In fact, um, uh, the, the limited times we've had conversations about content of projects, we are not on the same page. I was going to ask, yeah, do you align about yeah. a lot of things? Yeah, uh, my parents, uh, when I was in college, moved up to Shelby, North Carolina, and uh, we were riding around one day, and I made a quip about you know needing to reduce the number of lanes and introduce some on-street parking, and boy, my, my dad didn't love that one. So, <laughs> Generational uh, difference, I'm sure. Very much so, very much so. Um, no, I spent my early part of my life uh, uh, interested in architecture. Um, interestingly, NC State's architecture program is extremely competitive, 
and I didn't get in. And um, uh, the option came available to in, apply instead to the civil engineering department. I said, well, I, I like building things, so sure, that works. And so I ended up in transportation and, and really did find a home. How big is the transportation department of the city of Raleigh? Is that the right word, department? Yes, that's okay. right. So, and, and that's a change from a few years ago. So when I started with the city of Raleigh back in 1999, I, I came into the transportation department. And um, we did a reorganization a few years later and became a public works department. Well, a couple of years ago, we actually split it back and went back to having separate transportation and engineering departments. Uh, I believe the total department size right now is uh, over 300 when you take into account all of our, our office staff, our field forces, all the folks that do maintenance of the roads and traffic signals and all the signs. And what does it mean to separate those two things? So primarily what it's worked out to be is from the, the transportation department side, um, you know, we have our operations functions, um, but we also have the strategic and the planning functions as it relates to transportation. On the engineering side, uh, it is more about the construction and, and the implementation. It. So for example, um, my team is responsible for setting up uh, the capital improvement program, uh, looking at uh, if we're going to have um, a transportation bond referendum and what would be projects that would be supported by that type of referendum. And then we hand those individual projects off to our engineering services department. They have a uh, design construction division that specifically does nothing but implementation of roadway projects. Fantastic. If I see a, like a road construction going on somewhere in Raleigh, does that mean that, uh, that you're involved in it somehow or that it's in your department? Or could there be some sort of road construction that didn't involve you guys? So not always would I have, I have a, a hand in things. Um, I'll give you a big context answer first. The, the city has a comprehensive plan, and that comprehensive plan um, dictates what the city's growth is going to be, what our, our levels of development, different types of development. And in response to that, we have developed a roadway network of, of streets and highways this, that is perfect. This is playing into one of our other episodes where we talked about oh. the comprehensive plan. That's, <laughs> it's like building on it. Bringing so it all together. Excited yes. up. So that's great. But it, it um, Raleigh is a planned city. And so all of our streets have prescribed cross sections. So for certain development projects, um, and I used to be involved in development review years ago. Uh, now we have a, a team through our development services department that handles those. Uh, they they uh, consult with us on more complex and larger cases. But for the most part, if we have a situation where a development is going in and the development is required to widen out the street per the comprehensive plan, I wouldn't necessarily see that. So. Roads don't come from the road store. They come from one of three places. They, the city builds them, the state builds them, or private development builds them. And so for some of those development um, cases, I've seen the base as far as what gotcha. what what uh, predicated, the prescribed the need to have the street be a certain width. Um, but yeah, if it's a city roadway project or a DOT roadway project, I've got my fingerprints on it. What is the, and maybe it's better than I think, but when the average citizen is contacting you or your office, what percentage of the time is it to complain about something, and what percentage of the time is it to tell you, uh, you, you did, you guys are doing some great work or did some great work here? I would say the majority of folks that call the office are sometimes they're mad about something, sometimes they're curious about something, sometimes they have a, a problem and they need help, um, sometimes they just have a question. Um, I do get the occasional thank you call. Uh, that is always uh, a really pleasant thing to I receive. I feel like I see more of that on social media, too. Like, thanks for this new, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. people try to give up. Um, yeah. The funny one is sidewalks, 
because that's usually a situation where uh, oftentimes people have a lot of opposition to having sidewalks built, even on major roads. And then we put the sidewalks in and people go, oh, God, I love these. These are fantastic. <laughs> and uh, so we've gotten feedback on that. But occasionally when we've had like project partners go through some work and then uh, at the back end, people say, well, you know what? Thank you so much for your work on this. That's That's really nice. But when people call because they're upset about something, they've usually they've usually worked up they're, they're worked up to a point that they're mad that they're mad about something. They've exhausted their channels. Something it doesn't seem logical or rational to them. Um, I get more of that by email these days. I think people uh, tend to to vent, and there's a, there's an anonymity in the internet. I think that you know people's personalities come out and manifest in different ways. Sure. Um, so you, know, you get the all caps email. You know, get off my lawn. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, phone calls less less so these days. So you mentioned the the multimodal part of your job. Mm-hmm. We've only talked a little bit to this point about kind of the roads piece of it. What does multimodal cover in the context of Raleigh? You know, it's a it's a question that you know, when I've done presentations in the past, I've asked people how many how many modes of transportation are there? You know, you've got cars. Now, cars is not as simple an answer anymore because now you have private ownership cars, and then you've got shared shared use cars like Uber and Lyft, for example. But also like Zipcar. Uh, and then Zipcar with a, a shared asset. That's exactly right. Um, we talk a lot about when we talk about multimodal. We talk a lot about transit. We talk a lot about pedestrians. We talk about bicycle infrastructure. Um, it gets more nuanced when you look at things like freight. Um, transit is complicated because transit can be buses. Uh, or as we're now expanding here, bus rapid transit. Uh, in certain places, it can be trolleys, it can be light rail, it can be um, DMU, diesel self-propelled units, and then um, commuter rail and freight rail. So there's a lot of different things. And the one that we don't have here that we don't have to worry about is uh, waterways. So mm-hmm. except for, actually, it's kind of funny that the city is now developing a greenway, pl- uh, sorry, a blueway plan. What does that mean? Um, they're looking at... Um, developing the plan for the Noose River and looking at it from a canoe and boat access standpoint and making determinations on do we have the um, canoe launches and and, uh, river accesses spaced correctly, what type of amenities do we have at each one of those spots. Um, And as someone who has paddled the Noose a number of times, I'm really excited about that. Can I tell you, you've probably heard me talk about my grand idea. I've tubed up there Mm -hmm. from the Falls Lake to the Capitol Boulevard. Then I've obviously biked next to the news river a little bit further south but my dream is that it's not quite fast moving enough to be an attraction like a bigger river would be but i still think that you could get two or three local breweries give them a, a spot where you know they can have two or three staff and a couple kegs on a deck landing the, around the uh the area between the falls lake launch falls launch and uh and capitol boulevard and have make it like a little like uh Bluetooth. That's my. Let me. Can I put that in somewhere to the uh, to the Bluetooth <laughs> comment section? That uh, that sounds like a great private initiative. Oh, <laughs> well, we would like to work with the city on this initiative to make sure that uh, that it's all good. As they're putting in um, the, the the blue, what say it one more time? Blue way. The blue way. The blue, blue way. way yeah. You know we've um we've talked to developers and it's interesting because there are very few pieces of property along the News River that are commercially zoned. Yeah. And the ones that, that are, 
we've we've told them it's like this is a golden opportunity for a microbrewery. I mean, you would be killing it all day long. Yeah. Um, so if anybody's listening, yeah, no. <laughs> put one up there. I'm sorry, I probably cut into whatever your line of questioning was. With my, <laughs> I just heard you talk about it. I'm like, oh yes, I've, yes, I've got a plan. Well, and so actually, that's a good segue, I think, to a separate thing that. If people, as we talk, as they're listening to this, if they have ideas, if they want to participate in some of these planning processes, where do they go? Where do they find out more information about transportation, transit, those sorts of things? The easiest way is through the city's website. Um, And the city has an email service. Um, I want to say it's called Connect Rally. Uh, But it's on our website. You can sign up for updates for anything that the city does uh, in any department, any function, um, and then within transportation and transit, you can specify if you'd like specific information about Raleigh's Bicycle and Pedestrian Advisory Commission or the um, uh, Go Raleigh Board. Um, you can also request that you receive mailers on specific projects. So if you're interested in the Avent Ferry Corridor Plan, you can sign up to receive updates on that. Cool. Thank you. So, yeah, maybe yeah. you can submit your idea to the planning team. What are some of the large-scale uh, projects that you've recently completed that people would know about and be like, oh, yeah, I, I see what they did there? And maybe some that are current or upcoming, uh, the, the biggest ones on your plate around the city. We had a spate of projects that got finished um, over the last year that were fairly high profile. And, the, and the, the two biggest ones that come to mind are Hillsborough Street Phase 2 uh, between uh, Gardner and Rosemary and Shepherd. Uh, and then Raleigh Union Station. I mean, those. I think those are indicative of the depth and breadth of the type of things that we work on. Um, but Union Station was just a, a amazing undertaking and an even more amazing outcome. Um, and I'm really excited to see what happens with Phase Two as we move forward with that. I think Hillsborough Street, um, really as a as a city type legacy, it was such an important project, and that. Um, we did what we set out to do, which was we were going to improve the economic environment of the street and we were going to improve pedestrian safety. And um, people forget that at one time in the 90s, Hillsborough Street was the most hazardous street for pedestrians in North Carolina. And um, I've even witnessed a pedestrian crash out there, which is pretty horrifying. Uh, Ashton, that was, you were also hit on Hillsborough Street as well, correct? Yeah, but towards the capital end. Okay. But yeah, um, still a dangerous road. So, but we did it. I mean, we incentivized uh, over a half billion dollars of investment in the corridor. Pedestrian uh, crashes have dropped dramatically. Um, And we had some issues with phase one that, you know, because of the proximity of the phase one project to the phase two project and phase two still having all the traffic signals. Now that phase two is completed and the roundabouts are all in, traffic's moving more uniformly and better. Uh, People are moving back and forth across the street safely. Uh, Has really, we've really been happy with the results. And are there, I know a lot of the businesses for a while were concerned about, you know, the construction and all of that. Has there been a rebound from there and everyone's feeling like it was a positive move from that perspective as well? You know, interestingly, I I ran into a friend of mine a few weeks ago that worked at one of those businesses. And he told me that the owners had really girded up, that they were afraid that they were going to lose a significant portion of their business during construction. Um, They saved up money, thought they were going to be financially tight, said that they had their best year ever during construction. Um, and, and the outcomes have been phenomenal for them. So they're, they were very happy. I don't know if that's played out as far as the case for all the other businesses in the corridor. Um, but we, again, we are seeing 
things like the Stanhope Project went in in advance of, of our Hillsborough Street work in, in anticipation of it. it. It was part of the incentive. And now you've got some of the areas on the north side of the street now having some significant redevelopment too. And there's an, an interesting dichotomy there because I, I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up in Raleigh, but I went to NC State. Um, a lot of people lament sort of losing kind of a, we, we lost the brewery, we lost the Comet Lounge, we lost Sadlax, um, but streets and cities all evolve. Um, I'm really excited to see, you know, new development in. I mean, it's hard to tell me that the Plasma Center was was better than the Aloft Hotel. Right, you right. Know, that's that's just nostalgia talking. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, you know. Especially a street with bike lanes and wider sidewalks and, mm-hmm. and all of those things. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, speaking of a big project, and I, I picked this one to use it as an example, but you can pick another one if you want. But if I'm looking at the process of how a major project like Hillsborough Street gets done, and the one that I'm, I'm using as an example, again, you can pick another one if you want. But like right now, um, I've heard talks and seen different plans and changes of plans going on of, uh, I guess it's the everything from Glenwood to Wade Avenue around the Beltline and the reconstruction and, and uh, different businesses. Or is that, is that more uh, the NCDOT? Uh, the work at Wade Avenue and the work at Glenwood is primarily NCDOT. Okay. Well, well let me start there then. How much involvement do you have in something that is a, uh, a North Carolina DOT project, but that will obviously affect the city of Raleigh's transportation? So we often start working with DOT and we use the comprehensive plan as our starting point. Um, and that was the case with the Glenwood Avenue reconstruction at 440. Um, using the prior planning work that the city had done, we had boots on the ground there 10 years ago, working through and developing concepts. And um, we provided that to NCDOT. Now, the state is not bound by local comprehensive planning uh, to have to enact exactly what we have as part of our, our local planning. Um, I think it does a good job of informing the work. Sometimes the technology changes, sometimes the best practices change, uh, and sometimes public input and, and feedback can change uh, how the project is approached. I think this is a very good example of that, that uh, we had our concept from our 2010 plan. Um, it received some adverse feedback from some of the neighbors most directly impacted along um, Ridge Road. And um, that led NCDOT to look at completely retooling the process and doing something they've never done before, which was basically hire three additional firms to bring in three alternatives of their own making uh, in each case and make it almost like a a design competition. Um, And ultimately, um, it's going to be interesting to see how that project proceeds. Now, um, NCDOT is going through a rough spot right now in that at one point a couple of years ago, they had a significant surplus of money. Um, they weren't spending down their project money fast enough. Well, then not only did they start spending it faster, but then they got hit with two major hurricanes um, and some other hardships. And so now DOT uh, is very strapped financially to the extent that um, they've gone out and frozen about 900 projects across the state. And the Glenwood project is one of those projects right now. So there's going to be a, a suspension of, of work on that for the time being. It's not canceling the project, but basically says that they're not going to move forward with paying for consultants to do the work until their cash balances improve. Yeah. Wow. So, so and actually, that is a question I've kind of always wondered. What percentage of roads in Raleigh, especially in the core, are state-owned? Maybe they're not just in the core or state-maintained, I guess. Like, how much... Because I know there are sometimes, like mm-hmm. in downtown, for example, there are people want to do things on you know, crosswalks on Glenwood Avenue, and it's a state road, so it can be a little more challenging. What percentage of roads is kind of fall into that category? I hard press to give you a percentage. I can tell you 
as a rule of thumb, most major roads are state maintained. Okay. And most minor roads and residential streets are city maintained. So right now the city is coming up on about 1,100 miles of city maintained streets. And then... 1,100? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then the NCDOT maintains about 250 miles of streets within the city limits. How many miles of streets are there? And if you don't know that, we'll just cut this out. <laughs> uh, 1350. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. All right. So looking at a, a different project, use a diff- different example of mine. Let's go to the Hillsborough Street one or something like that. Without. Ooh, what about Blunt and um, Person Street? Because those are changing. Okay. Is that a good example? Yes. Okay. Blunt and Person Street because they're getting some bike lanes and some other stuff going on. Um, how does the process work for a change like that to make? For who starts it initially? What, who has to get contacted, who votes on it, who has input to, to then deciding who plans what, who makes the plans, who decides they are good plans, and then uh, sure. ultimately has it executed. Um, so that's a good example of one that actually involved a, a prior planning process and something that we use um, a tool called a corridor plan. And so that is where um, corridor plans and area plans are, are oftentimes used interchangeably. Area plans tend to be um, more amorphous in shape. Quarter plans are very linear and, and uh, follow along with the roadway alignment. And we see those currently at like Avon Ferry, Western, New Bern. Is that the yeah, same? Yeah, there's some good okay. examples. Yeah. Um, and we've got a, uh, an area plan coming up for Wakefield, for example. Um, Avon Ferry is wrapping up now. It's going to public hearing shortly. Um, but in the case of Blunt Person, there was a desire to look at doing a corridor plan uh, for Blunt Person and the Wake Forest Road corridor, basically from Capitol Boulevard all the way through the south of town to where Blunt and Person become Hammond Road. And the idea was that the, the, the philosophy guiding the projects was that we wanted to make these more um, human-scale streets, um, more st- streets that built more around people, especially as they pass through the core of downtown. And given the activity and the, and the spread of the core of downtown further eastward, that put more emphasis on making the streets a, a lot more human scale um, and less about pumping traffic through the middle of town. And so the corridor plan uh, in this case didn't function, didn't, didn't focus on land use, but it was primarily about transportation function. And so we came up with sort of a three-phase strategy. The first phase, which is going to place now, looked at trimming up some of the lanes and being able to add some bicycle infrastructure. Um, one of the problems that you've got on, on Blunt and Person is some real irregular lane patterns. And um, especially as you come through the more square area, to the north, you're headed southbound on, on Blunt Street, it's two lanes, then it widens out to three lanes, then it goes back to two lanes. Well, I use widen out, but the road doesn't actually widen. Right, right, right. They just add another so lane. <laughs> you get narrow lanes, yeah. and then you get a lane drop further down by Shaw University. And so what was what happens today is that uh, what we call lane utilization, uh, is very uh, imbalanced. If you have three lanes of road, then if you don't get the most capacity out of that, then you have all three lanes used uniformly, third, third, third. Um, but if you stand out there and watch traffic, what you see is everybody gets in the middle lane because nobody wants to be so close to the on-street parking on both sides and, and the lanes are relatively narrow. So you get like a 10, 80, 10 split on the the. the percentages there. Guilty of that. Yeah. <laughs> so what it means is the road really is is operating in a much less efficient pattern. So what we're doing is basically taking it to where it's two lanes uniformly through the entire corridor on both streets. 
ran traffic capacity and saw that there were no issues with that. Uh, that enabled us to be able to meet one of the city's other goals, which is to improve bicycling infrastructure. So we're adding that in as part of that. Um, the second step in this process is going to be uh, looking at converting both Blunt Street and Person Street to two-way operation. Um, and we're going to look at uh, adding some roundabouts. Uh, roundabouts we have found work very, very well relative to um, operations, pedestrian safety. Um, and Raleigh so, has to get better at driving in them, though. That's my only my only hang okay. up. <laughs> um, we're going to do one north of the Person Street Business District there where um, Person and um, Dolway come together, right where the Mordecai sign is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And then down uh, by the circus. Uh, okay. I, I reference everything the cir- by, by yeah. food. The circus by the restaurant. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. So I, we've jokingly called it the circus roundabout. Yeah, those are two odd uh, traffic yeah. places that, that you just mentioned. So it makes up sense. There by exactly. the circus. Yeah. It's like it's my Achilles heel. Yeah, over back, back when the state converted a lot of Raleigh streets to t- one way operation back in the late 60s, they did a really, really good job at it. And so undoing it is actually kind of difficult. Um, so we've got some, some work to do on that front. Um, and that's one of the reasons. So we just recently did the lane reduction along Wake Forest. I uh, went from four lanes down to three. Uh, we've done this on a number of streets throughout Raleigh over the years, most notably P Street and um, Clark Avenue. Um, Three-lane streets are safer than four-lane undivided streets as it relates to center turn lanes, pedestrians being able to cross the street safely. Uh, they carry just as much traffic. But one of the problems we're running into right now is um, the, the timing and the overlap of projects between the work on Wake Forest Road and the work on Capitol Boulevard uh, at uh, Peace Street, the northbound ramp at, at Peace is currently closed. And so that traffic is overflowing onto to, um, Wake Forest. And so there's higher volume of traffic now in there. So we've got some congestion and backups, but that's going to that's gonna work itself out shortly. Um, looking more generally at the process, or we can still use the same example, yeah. but do, um, like, you know, how did somebody say we need a change here? And then when it, uh, is there public input on, you know, if anything happens on Blunt or Person Street, do you have to talk to every business around Blunt and Person Street or at least notify them what you're doing? And then how does it go through the, the, the city government process? Absolutely. So as you go through these corridor and area plan processes, that's where we get feedback from the community about where are the problem areas? What is it that needs to be fixed? Um, what are things that we can do better? And then we put that through our filters as professionals, um, both on the in-house team and then also typically for these types of studies, we bring in a consulting team um, and they bring their own expertise and perspectives into play. And then ultimately all of that goes through a, a, a refinement process with the community. And then we take it out to the, the city council. Um, and ultimately the city council has final say on whether or not those recommendations and ideas that are uh, included in those quarter plans are going to make it into the final recommendations, and then some of those then are, are inculcated into the comprehensive plan. So that's that's how we get the concept behind these. Now, absent a corridor plan or area plan, people can submit ideas. Uh, the city of Raleigh goes through a capital improvement process every year, um, and people are always free to submit ideas on streets uh, and projects that need to be undertaken. Staff typically puts together a lot of the feedback we get from corridor and area plans, um, things that we've seen, things that we've heard, and things that council have directed, and then try and go through a method of prioritizing those projects. And ultimately, the, the city council makes a determination on uh, which projects are going to get funded. And so at that point, we then sort of go through the process again, but with a greater level of detail. So in concept, we say we're doing these lane reductions, we're going to do two-way conversion. 
And a project like Blunt Person was really interesting because it's a really long corridor. It's over two miles long. And as you can imagine, the, the, the populations of stakeholders are very different in different mm-hmm. segments of the corridor. So mm-hmm. the north end, you've got Mordecai and the edges of Oakwood. As you move further south, you've got the Person Street Business District, and you've got William Peace University, so you've got large institutional stakeholders. As you get into the core of downtown, you've got a lot of the adjacent businesses. And then south, uh, you've got Shaw University, and then you're into the College Park neighborhood. Um, and so, I'm sorry, South Park, South Park neighborhood. Um, uh, historically African-American, currently seeing a lot of change. Uh, that's one of the other challenges with these types of projects is, is infrastructure takes time. Um, and that process of developing the ideas, developing the plans, developing consensus. Um, oftentimes we have stakeholders change during the process. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting dynamic when uh, you get towards the, the end stages of you know, moving into implementation and you've got brand new stakeholders saying, whoa, whoa, whoa what, are you, what are you doing here? What's, yeah. what, what's this craziness? Yeah. Yeah, so um, that's that's a big challenge, uh, and then ultimately um, we take our project city council you know, check in to make sure that that what we included and what we said we were going to deliver is what we're delivering. See if there's any outstanding issues, and council's the the arbiter on that, and then the project moves forward into construction. So a project that's kind of in process right now that we mentioned a little bit. Uh, we talked about Avon Ferry. We talked about Newburn Corridor. And that is one that I know is um, lined up for BRT, Bus Rapid Transit. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what that is, what that program looks like in Raleigh, and how those projects get implemented? Is that too many so, questions? No, not at all. Um, the, the fundamentals of it is Bus Rapid Transit is, uh, in principle, looking at creating dedicated busways. Um, in some places around the U.S., these busways have been installed on as their own road and their buses only. In some cases, they've been installed as parallel roads next to existing roads. And then in some cases, they're integrated uh, as either running on dedicated lanes on the outsides of the major road or dedicated lanes on the inside. Um, I, I like to point to the, the best examples closest to us. Uh, I, would, I would tell people to look at uh, what's going on in Arlington and Alexandria. Um, and we took a team up there a couple of years ago to look at the implementation of their system, the design, and that gave everybody a good touch point for what these systems, how they function, how they feel, how they relate to the street and the land uses on the ground. And um, as we developed the Wake Transit Plan uh, in 2016, you know, we've been working for years with um, what used to be Triangle Transit Authority and is what is now Go Triangle. Um, had worked originally on developing a, a rail plan that, that failed. There was a revival of the rail plan. It failed. And um, there was an effort that was kickstarted by Wake County and partnered with all the, the localities to look at restarting that process and saying, okay, what do we need as a region for mass transit? And um, we brought in some, some very good consulting uh, folks that folks on nothing but transit, but were also able to get large rooms of a lot of elected officials together and institutional leaders to go through the nuts and bolts of how transit works, trade-offs between uh, systems that are focused on um, ridership versus accessibility. And as part of that process, what we determined was that um, if we set up a proper revenue source locally, and in our case, it was a half-cent sales tax, um, if we set that up, it would position us well to be able to compete for major funding for projects. Um, but it also, as we looked at what we could do with our money, what we discovered was we could do a lot more 
bus rapid transit and touch a lot more people in corridors than we could if we tried to develop a light rail system. And ultimately, that's what was boiled into the, the, the wiring of the, the weight transit plan. Now, there still is a plan for a commuter rail train. And, and commuter rail uh, looks more like Amtrak, looks more like a heavy rail uh, passenger train, functions on regular train tracks. And um, we are working right now on the initial studies for what it takes to connect Raleigh to Durham. Ooh. Yeah. And so um, that's part of the weight plan. In fact, the weight plan goes all the way through um, Garner to um, the Wake County border. It would be really, really nice if we can extend it across the border into Johnston County and get it connected at a minimum to Clayton. Um, but the discussions about the rail planning lately have been talking about going west of Durham all the way to Mebane and then going east of, of Wake County all the way to Selma. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And then there's also discussions, too, about as we look at existing rail lines and that, that infrastructure being able to take um, uh, trains from downtown Raleigh northward up to Wake Forest and up into Franklin County and maybe someday all the way up as, as far north as Henderson. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of conversations about what that imp- implementation is going to look like, what ridership projections would look like, how frequently we can run trains. These are trains that are operating in the same corridors as existing Amtrak service and freight rail service, and so there's a lot of competition for track space, how much additional track would have to be built. And, and so it's a, it's a billion-dollar project to do that. Um, but it has a lot, of, uh, a lot of positives to it, and there's a lot of interest in creating that link between Raleigh and Durham. Um, now, the one question people always ask us about rail is, does it connect to the airport? Uh, and because of the fact that we're using an existing rail corridor, the answer is no. Um, but if you've ever been to Phoenix, I think Phoenix did one of the best best versions of that. They, their light rail system did not connect to their airport, but there's a spur transportation system that connects from the airport directly to one of the light rail stations. I think they're called SkyRail or something like that. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that that's the type of thing that you would see, either that or some type of high-frequency bus connection from the train station out to um, out of the airport. And when you mentioned phase two of Union Station, was, was this what you were referencing? So phase two of Union Station is uh, looking at developing part of more of the, the old Dillon Steel complex, um, this time the, the vacant buildings that are just north uh, between Martin Street and uh, Hargett Street. Oh, got it, yeah. Um, Go Triangle, back when it was Triangle Transit, actually bought those buildings um, as part of what it thought was going to be the original train station as part of its light rail implementation. Um, it did not end up using that for that case, and because of the fact it was there was transit money used, they have to do something transit-oriented with that, or they have to sell it and give the money back to Federal Transit Administration. But it just so happens that we have this need to be able to create a hub for um, bus transportation. And in the case of, you know, we already have Go Raleigh Station, or it used to be called Moore Square Station, Um, we're going to be operating kind of in a binary format that the trains that are focused, sorry, we're going to be operating in a binary format that the buses that operate out of Go Raleigh Station are going to be more of the local Go Raleigh buses, and then more of the regional buses and long haul will operate out of Raleigh Union Station Phase 2. And so as part of that, what what Go Triangle is looking at is trying to develop public-private partnerships so that it's not just a bus terminal with some parking. They're actually looking at some leasable space, um, and there's an affordable housing conversation taking place now as part of that. Thank you.
How do you get more people to ride the bus? Obviously, with the bus uh, rapid transit system, we'll have more buses going more places. That's one way to do it. In theory, going uh, faster than you could driving if they're on dedicated lanes during traffic times. What are other things that uh, that the city can do or that the, the bus service can do to get more people using it? Well, and we're very fortunate that we're on an uptick right now. Uh, the last two years, uh, we've bucked a national trend and that we've seen uh, increases in our ridership. And um, the reason behind that is as we're going into the implementation of the weight transit plan, there's several features of the bus system that are changing. One is that um, we're offering more service hours, so the bus, bus rides for longer. The, the, the things that make bus attractive are um, dependability, um, going places that you want to go, um, and, and being safe and clean. And that's really the, the basics. Um, there's a, there's a, a metric in there for affordability, too. Um, and when you say reliability, you mean frequency as part of that, or is that a separate? That the bus has got to be there when, when you think it's going to be there. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, the misery of just standing in the hot southern sun and waiting 35 minutes for a bus that was supposed to be here five minutes ago is, is it's not good. Um, and so... Um, I really like the technological changes that have gone along with our system as well, that now we've got smartphone apps that we can track the buses in real time, which is was generally pretty reliable. Um, but the big philosophical change was that we were going to migrate away from what was predominantly a coverage-based system to a ridership-based system. And I can explain that with peanut butter. Okay, You can take peanut butter. If you think peanut butter is your transit resources, okay, okay? take that peanut butter and you can, you can spread it around and everybody gets peanut butter. You know, but that bus is going to come once an hour, or maybe you know, less frequent than that. Or you take that peanut butter and you can concentrate it. So those buses are coming a lot more frequently. Now you're not offering that sort of concierge level service where that bus is coming through your neighborhood or to your front door. That's where it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we've got an adequate sidewalk system out of these major roads, and the buses are coming by with greater frequency uh, and and moving with with more reliability. And so by doing that, uh, that's one of the key things that we're seeing as far as influencing people's uh, behaviors with the transit system so far. Um, a, a traffic philosophy question. Um, I, it's for, a big question for yeah, podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, traffic exactly. I might need a beer for that. <laughs> yeah, well, we'd be happy to. How about a cookie? Could, um, <laughs> now, uh, in theory, if, if you hear that uh, there's a road that's getting a lot of traffic, the I could see the logical solution be, make the road wider so that more people can get on it. Um, in my understanding of traffic and city building, that, that seemed to make a lot of sense, right? Now I hear more and more, actually, uh, that you can influence people's habits by not giving them um, more roadway or whatever it is, forcing traffic to back up, and therefore people will use a bus or um, ride a bike or figure out some other way to do it. How, how do you balance those two? Because obviously we're not going to stop building roads, but obviously we do like to influence better tr- transportation habits like riding the bus or ride sharing or riding bikes or walking. Wow. You know, the, the one word that I use a lot in, in my profession is context. Uh-huh. Um, and you've got to determine what's the right context for, for everything that you do. And it's one of the reasons I can, I can look on one hand and say, I think taking travel lanes away from Hillsborough Street creates a better outcome. At the same time, I can look at the street like Six Forks and say, in that case, we need to add lanes there. Um, the big concept that people 
talk a lot about and don't quite grasp entirely is what's known as induced demand. The idea being that if you start adding capacity to facilities, people are going to change their behaviors and soak up that capacity. That was a really, really transit planner way to explain that. I think <laughs> when you talk about adding capacity to facilities, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Is that so just adding lanes to the road? Adding lanes. Thank That's you. exactly right. So if you take a you take a four lane road and you make it six, you know, uh, how soon does that extra capacity get used up by people changing their behaviors? Um, what people don't get is that what induced demand is not is is growth. Okay, so if if there's growth that's taking place, that demand is is pushing these corridors regardless. Now sometimes you get the, the sprawl theory, which is that if you are going to build these additional transportation facilities, it facilitates the growth of other communities, which then drives more traffic, and it's kind of a, a perverse cycle there. Um, and that's one of the things that we work with regional planning agencies to look at our traffic projections and, and try and make good calls on how wide those roads need to be. Like I said, Raleigh's a planned city, and so we looked at what those those future street capacities need to be, how many lanes does each street need to be in order to handle the growth that's anticipated for each region. Um, and what's interesting is we've looked at growth patterns and gone back and looked at the number of years of, of, of we've got traffic data going back to the 1950s. And um, what's wild is like Capitol Boulevard north of downtown at one point was the highest traveled highway in North Carolina yeah. oh, wow. with traffic volumes north of 100,000 cars back in the 60s. And what do we see now? Um, around 60. Wow. And it's been flat. People take uh, 64 to 95 now. Yeah, huge, huge changes in the the highway infrastructure immediately around Raleigh and then also on the regional scale with traffic that doesn't have to travel U.S. 1 through Raleigh anymore. Um, So those types of those types of changes. But what's most interesting about the the traffic demand on Capitol Boulevard is even with all the growth we've had in downtown in the last 20 years, the traffic volumes have been almost flat. So it's a it's one of the reasons why we're such proponents of density and mixed use development because that's that type of development does a lot better job of generating less car traffic overall as opposed to single story, you know what people sometimes call horizontal mixed use development. <laughs> uh, oftentimes requires people to get in their car to get from one use to another. Um, so um, the induced demand argument is kind of interesting because what it really focuses on is people that will actually change their behaviors and say, oh, they've widened I-40 now to eight lanes, so I can now take, I can go down rush hour rather than having to adjust my travel patterns. And what you're seeing in reality is induced demand plays out very well at the highway level system on, on big roads. Plays out less, so maybe 5% or so of traffic um, really is, is some people changing their behaviors because there's additional capacity. Um, one of the challenges we've got is um, there are a number of planned new roads that are part of our comprehensive plan. There's a number of facilities, um, for example, Skycrest Drive extension on the east side of town will eventually extend out and connect across to 540 and out to Nightdale. And there's a lot of planned growth that's out in that area. Um, but once you get out a certain point outside the Beltline, the grid starts to get a little sparse. And the, the trade-off, people say, well, we shouldn't build any more roads. That's really not necessarily the answer. Uh, in fact, if you build more roads and you have a, a denser network of a, a denser grid of streets, the roads that you have can actually be smaller. You know, um, 
but because of North Raleigh the way that it is with a, about a one mile super grid, um, that's that's hard to undo, especially with with mature grown neighborhoods that are on the in between. It's tough to go back in and add new streets. So um, we're we're in a, a discussion right now about appropriateness of four lane versus six lane roads, and part of it is our our, our natural geography and how we've grown as a city. Um, yeah, sometime I, I'm going to do, maybe when I retire, I'll do an armchair quarterback of all the things we could have done. Yes. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think one of my favorite quotes about that is around the idea that you wouldn't, like, loosen your belt to lose weight. You know, it's, uh, it's sort of the idea that adding capacity doesn't always solve the problem. That's true, but I think that that conversation characterizes growth as bad. Sure. I wouldn't make my my 10-year-old wear the same clothes he was wearing when he was 5 years right. old. Right, of course, okay? of course. So it's, it's really what, what type of growth it is that you're yeah. having. And is, is it... Is it planned growth? Is it justifiable growth? Or is it, you know... Just haphazard. Exactly. What is it they say that um, um, growth for growth's sake is the mantra of a cancer cell? Oh, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Well, you you talked a little bit about... patterns and the volume of cars on the road is actually kind of flatlined a little bit. Um, what about the future? What indication do we have and what is Rally doing thinking about how, you know, are we seeing fewer people driving or are we seeing more shared rides, more are we planning for autonomous vehicles, you know, those kinds of things. And obviously no one has a crystal ball and if we did, we wouldn't be necessarily be sitting here doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Stock um, market. But so what are some of the things that the city is, is looking out for and kind of trying to plan around and what yeah. are the trends you're seeing? So let me clarify that, that growth number because yeah. that was specifically along Capitol Boulevard. Okay, In other places around the city, we, we, we have different rates of growth based yeah. on, on uh, different characteristics. Um, and you bring up autonomous vehicles. That's a really interesting dynamic. Um, it's, some people said it would play out sooner. Some people are now saying, oh, it's going to be a long time before we really see that. Um, it'll be interesting to see how quickly the private market um, coalesces around some standards. I think that's when you'll start to see uh, these things uh, become more realistic. I'm, I'm really curious to see companies like uh, Waymo and how they perform with their on-demand autonomous vehicle services. The thing that people don't know how to answer yet is what is the proliferation of AV going to do to uh, our traffic patterns and our traffic volumes. There's, a, I think, a prevailing theory right now that um, if you look at what's happened with ride-hailing services in New York, traffic volumes on the streets have gone up significantly because of the predominance of how many ride-hailing services there are out there on top of the existing taxi network. So I think that from an AV standpoint, if you couple that with ride-sharing technology, you're probably going to see an increase in the total vehicle miles traveled. That car is going to take somebody to work, and then it's going to drive around and find somebody else to pick up and keep making trips on the network, as opposed to when I drive my car to work, I do. I drive a single occupancy vehicle. You can shame me if you want to. It's fine. (laughs) Um, I drive my car to work. I park my car. That car sits there. So that car is done putting mileage on the network until I get back in it. So there's a a prevailing thought that ride sharing and autonomous vehicles is going to increase the total amount of trips on the network. The question is, is that necessarily a bad thing when you get enough autonomous vehicles together, they're all talking to each other, and they're all using the network more efficiently. So sometimes as I'm driving home and I hit a spot of stalled traffic, uh, and you, you see what they call the shock wave, when it, 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 got, it got gummy, and then traffic seizes up for no apparent reason, and then it starts moving again. That is literally like fluid dynamics in, in, <laughs> at work right there. Um, 
autonomous vehicles won't have that problem because they'll all communicate with each other and they'll work that out very, very easily. Um, the space between cars will go down. The number of crashes will go down. So there's a debate about whether or not an increase in VMT is actually bad. Now, the, the third part Wait, of that stool. What is stool, VMT? Vehicle miles traveled. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the third part of that stool is we talked about autonomous vehicles. We talked about ride sharing. The, the third part is uh, electric electrification of vehicles. And that's going to really take place at a much, much higher rate of speed. As you're now seeing, manufacturers are saying they're going to be combustion engine free within a number of years. And, and part of it is, is just simple math um, that there are thousands of moving parts uh, on a regular combustion uh, uh, automobile, and there's like 18 on an electric vehicle. Oh, wow. Yeah. So from a repair standpoint, they're going to last a lot longer too. They think that you know, right now with conventional combustion engines, you're going to get 200 to 300,000 miles out of them. They're saying getting a million miles out of a, a electric vehicle is is going to be expected. So that changes the car. It changes the car market. I think that the the one company that's really seen that is probably Ford. As Ford has announced, they're going to get out of the car business. They're, they're still going to manufacture trucks, but they're going to get out of selling cars. And now they're rebranding themselves as Ford Mobility. And they're looking at mobility solutions. So that's a, a you know, radical change in the, the landscape from, from the business side of things. We're in election season. Uh, you've helped sort of educate me, certainly, and hopefully others on some of the transportation issues. Specifically, what impact do elected officials have on transportation and transportation decisions around the city? And I'll use an example that I know isn't in place. So it's not tied to any candidate or any group of candidates. But let's say five candidates all got elected that said, we want to rid the city of bike lanes. Mm -hmm. We hate bike lanes. We want to get rid of them. If a majority of those people got elected, could they start taking them away? Or is that something that's, it's, it, there's so many things already deep into it, a, a comprehensive plan, all those other things, that any certain council only is limited in how much they could do? Uh, the short answer is yes. <laughs> uh, uh, five members of the council can can direct Just staff to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it doesn't matter if it's consistent with the comprehensive plan necessarily, um, but if the council turned and, and there was a, 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 you would think that this would be reflective of, of some public directive sure. um, that they would want to, to remove that infrastructure, uh, yeah, we would go out and do it. Huh. Uh, subject to approval from NCDOT on their streets. Gotcha. Um, and in general, more generally speaking, like how much impact does, do, uh, does an elected council have on the day-to-day -day workings of the transportation department? From a policy perspective, the city council members are very important. They, they set the direction. Um, we work with them to set the priorities. And ultimately, they're the ones that make the decisions about how projects get funded. And obviously, when we've had transportation bonds, you know, sometimes, uh, depending on the city's bonding capacity and how large the debt issuance is going to be, sometimes that requires a, a tax measure. And that, that plays out in terms of property tax. Uh, in the case of the Wake Transit Plan, it took the city council to support the measure for us to have a referendum about uh, putting a half-cent sales tax on the ballot. Uh, and that only came from the um, uh, direction and permission from the state legislature. And so, so yeah, the, the elected officials are incredibly important for helping us um, move all of these items forward. Is that? That, no, that was good. Gives you me. what you need? Yep. All right. And then the last one, I think, for you, we may, we may need to cut it because we may not have this, but now, yeah, yeah, scooters. We'll Tell us a little bit about what is the situation with scooters. We've talked about, you know, last mile mobility and those kinds of things. Um, and Raleigh has seen some scooters here for a while and then went away and now we've got a new company on the ground. What do we need to know about Gotcha? 
So I think well, the first and foremost, we, we didn't get rid of scooters. Um, there was a lot of feedback, and I will tell you that in, in working for the city for over 20 years now, there is almost nothing that has generated hmm. the amount of fervor and um, equ- equal amounts of fervor and disdain. I'll yeah. put it that yeah. way. Sure. You either love them or you hate them. It's like licorice. Took my scooters. Took my scooters. Yeah, it's like it's like licorice. You, know, you either, either yeah. love it or you sure, hate sure. it. And people... Um, uh, people were enthusiastically supportive of it. People were vehemently against it. Um, it's been interesting to sort of watch from this side of the fence and see how that has, has played out. Um, at the end of the day, we ended up in a situation where you had you know two companies that came to Raleigh um, and did so without any tor- sort of regulatory framework in place. Um, and so our exercise with the city council was to, in fact, put that regulatory um, system in place and ultimately that led to us going through an RFP process to, to ask for vendors to come and operate under certain parameters. And What's an RFP process? Thank you very much. Uh, RFPs are requests for proposals. Requests for proposals. So, um, so the two companies that were operating here opted to not put in. They did not feel like they could meet the terms that city was requesting. And some of those things involved what was going to be the, the fee per bike uh, to operate here. And then, um, I'm sorry, fee per scooter. Um, and then the uh, insurance requirements that we have. And um, there's been some some legal challenges because of the fact that the way that scooters are defined or aren't defined in state yep. law, yep. what regulation they fall under. There was a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, people that agreed that they fell under uh, mopeds based on the description. And then some folks said, no, 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 there's no way. They're, they're, they can't be considered mopeds. And so it's led to, we, we were hopeful the legislature was going to come out with some clarifying language during this session. And it was it was pending, and then it went away. So I don't know what that means, if we'll see that come up under a different bill or whatnot. So we're, we're hopeful that'll help clarify, if nothing else, what the landscape for scooters needs to be. And we're not the only ones having this issue. Sure. Um, so, um, But we had five companies that said that they could live by the conditions that had been uh, set out by the city council. And so um, we went through that process and ultimately we selected Gotcha. We are really appreciate the, the, the collaboration that they've shown with us so far. Um, one of the things that we're talking about is one of the frequent complaints that we received uh, was scooters littering the sidewalk, you know, and just willy-nilly end up in people's yards. Um, we got a lot of private property complaints. And... Um, whether it was through inadequate training by the, the by the vendors or just um, disrespect by folks that were putting the scooters out, they were ending up on people's sidewalks. They were they were blocking like private property, not public sidewalks, mm-hmm. just right, ending up in right. people's yards. Um, so one of the things that Gotcha has uh, shown a willingness to to explore is the idea of creating corrals where we can designate areas, not not exclusive areas, but areas where the scooters can be bundled. Um, and they would create a financial incentive to encourage people to return them to the corrals. Uh, you could still use them free range, just like um, uh, other scooter systems. Um, but there would be an encouragement to put them back in these places. So I think that's one of the things that will be helpful to addressing these issues that have come up. Um, one of the challenges we have is that uh, a lot of people on scooters, they're so much fun. They just want to ride all over the place. And when you're in a mixed traffic environment, especially like downtown, that notion of predictability uh, is really important, and um, 
that's one of the things that has led to a couple of the crashes that we've had yeah. uh, with scooters. So, but then that becomes part of the challenge for us to be able to do more infrastructure downtown and in parts of the city that support micromobility, which means we have to start talking about some trade-offs. Yeah. Uh, that means we, we can't have as much on-street parking as in these places. Or um, we're having that conversation also with bus rapid transit as it comes into downtown on those major corridors. We create those dedicated spaces for buses. Well, that means we can't necessarily have uh, parked cars or bikes in some cases. So it's, it's, a really, it's a really interesting conversation right now. Thanks for listening to Podcast Raleigh. Review us on your favorite podcast app. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. 